Welcome back to the re-education. First, allow me to explain why you haven't received any new episodes for nearly two weeks. I have been suffering from a nasty respiratory illness that reduced my speaking voice, as you can probably tell, to a sandpaper rasp. Believe me, this is much better than it was even a few days ago. Anyway, such are the risks of being the father of a beautiful one-year-old girl. She is doing much better. I am on the mend. My wife is doing okay. We'll make it. Please do not despair. We have got some bangers in the works. On deck are some really good episodes about Ukraine, anti-Semitism, and J. Edgar Hoover, with many more to come and of the quality that you've come to expect from the re-education. Today's show is a monologue only and a kind of bookend to the last episode where I made the case for divided government in Washington, D.C. As I am sure you all know now, the election defied prediction and expectation. So, without further ado, here is the show. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. And I know you were somewhat miffed by my, uh, my uh, obsessive optimism, but uh, I felt good during the whole process. I thought we were going to do fine. While any seat lost is painful, some good Democrats didn't win the last night. Democrats had a strong night. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, and my fellow citizens, America's comeback starts right now. We just heard from two senior citizens who faced off in 2020 for the presidency and are now threatening a rematch for 2024. Joe Biden, age 79, and Donald Trump, age 76. The befuddled versus the berserker. Frail and foggy versus fat and crazy. Well, like most Americans, I hope and I believe that we can do better. And I think that is what the voters in the aggregate were telling their elected leaders in the midterms. Unfortunately, both Donald Trump and Joe Biden have failed to distinguish the signal from the noise. Now, the correct signal from the midterms that both Biden and Trump should have gotten is best expressed, in my opinion, by the great MC Eminem in his epic diss track of source publisher Ray Benzino. Here, let me break this shit down in layman's terms for you just to make sure that you can understand it. Some cannabis ain't using too many complicated fucking words for you. Here, let me slow it down for you so that you can understand if I say it slower. Let it go, dog, it's over. I don't wanna be like this. I don't really wanna hurt no feelings, but I'm only being real when I say nobody wants to hear their grandfather rap. Uh-uh. And old men have heart attacks. Instead, Joe Biden and Donald Trump heard the bubbly assurance of Denise Williams from her brilliant 1983 track from the soundtrack to the movie Footloose, Let's Hear It for the Boy. Okay, so what do I mean here? 
about signal and noise and getting the right message from the midterms. Well, let's start with an obvious point. Republicans should have wiped the floor with Democrats. Joe Biden remains, according to pre-midterm and post-midterm polls, hovering at around 40% job approval, sometimes tipping into the 30s. Most Americans are feeling the pinch of inflation with fears of a massive recession just around the corner. And while Democrats have tried to quietly drop their association with defunding police departments and bail funds for rioters that was so prevalent in 2020, the Democratic Party has not really devoted much energy to addressing the legitimate fears of voters about rising crime. Instead, many Democrats have engaged in too clever by half gaslighting. Here's an example from California Governor Gavin Newsom last year on The View. Property crime has gone up in many, many states, red states, not just blue states. Violent crime and property crime, for example, is higher in Texas than it is in California. I don't see that on Fox News. So in a normal political climate, inflation, crime, pending recession, and a very unpopular president would have been an open floodgate for a red wave. So why didn't it materialize? Well, I'm not a political scientist, but there are lots and lots of answers to that question. In my view, and I don't think this is controversial, the biggest problem for the Republicans this year was none other than Donald Trump. So just look at the results. Candidates that Trump intervened in the primary to endorse, who passed his fealty test by claiming the 2020 election was not legitimate, did far worse than normal Republicans who accepted that Trump lost that election. Brian Kemp, ran away with the Georgia governor's race against 2018 election denier Stacey Abrams. Herschel Walker, who got the Trump boost in the primaries, ran neck and neck with Raphael Warnock, and there will be a runoff election next month. The pattern repeated in New Hampshire and Ohio as well. Normal Republicans won by comfortable margins. Trump endorsed election deniers, either lost, or in the case of J.D. Vance in Ohio, had much closer elections than their non-Trumpy governors. In some cases, the Trump-endorsed candidates from the primaries just flat out got smoked. And more important, Trump endorsed these candidates in the primaries against usually, you know, the wishes of the establishment of the Republican Party, and then was so parsimonious with his super PAC money that it was left in many cases to Mitch McConnell's super PAC to kind of bail out the Trump-endorsed candidates in the final weeks of the general election in terms of buying television ads, another strike against Donald Trump. The most glaring example of this dynamic was in you know, my home state of Pennsylvania. I'm from Philadelphia. Right before the primary, the Democratic nominee, John Fetterman, suffered a stroke. It was a tragedy. Nobody should be making light of that. It's a terrible thing. For months, his campaign insisted, though, that Fetterman was recovering and he was fine, and they would allow friendly journalists to get access to the candidate who would in turn assure us that he had few problems and was on the road to recovery. So finally, two weeks before Election Day, John Fetterman and his Trump-endorsed opponent, Mehmet Oz, held a debate. Here's a clip, and it's hard to listen to it. started, Mr. Fetterman, we're going to begin with you. Your political experience includes serving as the mayor of Braddock, a small borough near Pittsburgh, and one term as lieutenant governor. You're running for a seat that could decide the balance of power in Washington. What qualifies you to be a U.S. Senator? You have 60 seconds. Hi. Good night, everybody. I'm running to serve Pennsylvania. He's running to use Pennsylvania. 
Here's a man that spent more than $20 million of his own money to try to buy that seat. I'm also having to talk about something called the Oz rule, that if he's on TV, he's lying. He did that during his career on his TV show. He's done that during his campaign about lying about our record here. And he's also lying probably during this debate. Well, wouldn't you know it? John Fetterman won by a quarter million votes, by four points, despite a debate performance which confirmed the worst fears about his cognition after the stroke. So why did he win? Because Mehmet Oz, the TV doctor, was on the ticket with a gubernatorial candidate named Doug Mastriano. We've talked about him before. He is a Trump superfan, a state legislator, who traveled to Washington on January 6th and basically ran his campaign for the governorship on his fealty to the former president and the former president's lie about the 2020 election. It is healthy that Pennsylvania voters chose a candidate who can barely speak in coherent sentences over a celebrity friend of a former president can accept the results of an election that he loses. That's what Pennsylvania told us. Now, on one level, I have to say I'm very happy about this. If the Republican Party can learn this year that candidates who deny elections are the political equivalent of radioactive waste, well, then they are on the road to reform, and that is a good thing. Problem, though, is that the gift of defeat in this case for the Republican Party, if they are willing to listen, is a bit of a booby prize for Democrats, who are likely to think they can get away with the shenanigans they pulled in the election after Fetterman's stroke, such as accusing journalists who point out Fetterman's condition of being quote-unquote ableist, which is absurd, or waiting until the last moment to reveal how impaired their candidate really was. I mean, I don't know if you've seen this, but there have been a bevy of these stories. How can the Democrats create another John Fetterman? I'm, you know, kind of smacking my forehead on it. Anyway, this point also carries over to another tactic the Democrats deployed during the midterm. And this one was particularly cynical, as I have noted in other episodes. Democrats provided in-kind donations to the craziest and Trumpiest Republicans in primaries by running ads that emphasize their support for Donald Trump or their pro-life views on abortion. These ads, you know, could potentially be effective against candidates in a general election, but in a primary, they count as endorsements. So, after getting the general election nominees the party wanted, the Democrats decided to run on the notion that democracy itself was on the ballot in November because so many Republican candidates denied the 2020 election. Yes, DCCC, democracy was on the ballot, I suppose, because you helped put it there. Congratulations. So while it's good that the crazies lost, the downside is that this election may have affirmed the efficacy of a deceptive tactic of supporting extremists in a primary and then lecturing voters on how dangerous the extremist is in a general election. I would hope that a political party that plays that kind of game is punished by the voters, but they were in fact rewarded this year for that tactic. Okay, I want to end on a little bit of good news. My friends, no matter what title you all, my colleagues, have bestowed upon me, speaker, leader, whip, there is no greater official honor for me than to stand on this floor and to speak for the people of San Francisco. This I will continue to do as a member of the House, speaking for the people of San Francisco, serving the great state of California, and defending our Constitution. 
and with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. That was 82-year-old Nancy Pelosi making good on her promise not to seek another term as leader of her party in the House of Representatives. The 83-year-old House Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer, also announced he would not run for a leadership position. Bravo. It's nice to see Pelosi and Hoyer getting out of the way for the next generation. It's also nice to see that these two veteran politicians correctly interpreted the will of the voters. Even though House Democrats did better than expected in the midterms, they still lost the majority. It's time for new blood. And my wish now, Donald Trump and Joe Biden will learn from Pelosi and Hoyer's example. One of the great advantages of democracies is that regular elections for all levels of government can give valuable feedback to its leaders. In totalitarian and authoritarian states, regimes become sclerotic because such feedback cannot exist. This is why, until Mikhail Gorbachev came on the scene at the end of the Soviet Union, they had a succession of these, like, fossils in the late 70s and the early 80s. Think of Andropov, the former head of the KGB. These were people who were in their 70s and their 80s who were, you know, basically put in charge of the country, and they did not have the energy, the vision. They were not the right people for that moment. Now, of course, I'm happy that the Soviet Union no longer exists. They were an evil slave state. So if it hastened the collapse of the Soviet Union, in my view, that's a good thing. But I am an American patriot. I love this country. And I think if we have leaders in our democracy that cannot understand the signal that they are getting from voters, and we are faced again with another election between an octogenarian and a septuagenarian, then we are on the road to becoming a gerontocracy. And I think that that's pretty bad for the country. So I am hoping that we can clear away the old generation and make way for the new. Unfortunately, the current president and the last president are now ignoring that message of the voters. And I guess you could say, I think it is up to us to help them understand it. And with that, I will see you in a few days. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.